Hello to 100. This week, we've hit the big 100, and we'll talk about new Indigenous ward names, a brand new EPS committee, and middle management. Plus, Edmonton will play home to the largest on-demand bus pilot in Canada. Can you still call a $20 million project a pilot? Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Well, it's Speaking Municipally, episode 100, and normally this segment off the top is when there's nothing in the script and Mac and I sort of just riff for a minute or two before we get to the rapid fire segment. Well, and I might jump in with one thing, actually. This is 100 episodes, but more importantly, this is 100 puns. It has been quite the trek. But unfortunately, we can't riff at the top of this episode because what we instead must do is read a prepared statement. We at Speaking Municipally have never backed down from a fight. I personally have always had the belief that if someone doesn't sue you for it, then what you said was okay. And if they do sue you for it, then that's proof that what you're saying was true and hitting the right spot. But sometimes a judge doesn't see it that way. Unfortunately, we have to announce that we are on the losing end of a trademark dispute decided by summary judgment. And due to the court order, we must do the following three things. One, cede three and a half minutes of airtime in our opening segment of the hundredth episode to the plaintiff. Two, say that we were wrong on air and the order didn't stipulate that we couldn't itemize it as an instruction in the list. So got you there, I guess. Check and mate. And three, Agree to the private terms of a binding arbitration agreement to be disclosed by the plaintiff. We certainly don't like to agree to this, and would like to formally state that we're doing this under duress. But sometimes, like when Mike Nickel votes yes at council, you have to do something that simply violates the core of who you are. So, with that, over to you, Julian Fade, and congratulations on your big win. Thank you, Troy, for that warm, heartfelt, and court-ordered welcome. It's truly a pleasure to be on the 100th episode of Speaking Municipally. We here at Rapid Fire Theatre, proud owners of the Rapid Fire trademark in Edmonton, weren't sure we should even bring forward this lawsuit. But after an internal vote, it was decided as the best course of action to protect what's rightfully ours. Chalk up another vote Troy has lost by a landslide. See, this is truly about doing what's right. It's certainly not about getting our small theater company free publicity on a podcast with less reach than an awful street preacher on White Avenue. Nor is it about calling out Troy for committing election fraud during a pet election to have his cat become mayor of a dog park. We also have not been hired by the City of Edmonton's Communications Department to knock Troy, Edmonton's official communications troll, down a peg. We just want to make sure that there is balance returned to the world. After all, it's fairly clear by his actions that Mac is only interested in the almighty dollar, as is evident by him starting a media company. <laughs> oh boy, I thought improv paid poorly. Taproot is clearly a front for his larger aspirations, as he acts as a puppet master pulling the strings of the political elite and using Troy as a mouthpiece for hot takes and vaguely witty verbal attacks. In fact, he's already perfected the political dark art of being completely non-controversial and too nice to make fun of. (laughs) A truly sinister move. Famous for creating the Yeg hashtag, Mac seems like an innocent, civically-minded urbanite with the city's best intentions in mind. However, speak to anyone who drives a car and you'll get a different story. 
You see, after successfully clogging our arteries with his what-the-truck events, business daddy Mac Mail won't be happy until every street in the city is congested by safe and accessible multi-use active corridors. <laughs> Obviously, Mac is in the pocket of Big Bike. Meanwhile, his rabid attack dog Troy salivates, awaiting his next command, ready to pounce on the poor, defenseless counselors of our city, only trying to do their jobs and or drop dank memes on Facebook of various levels of truthiness. And of course, by poor and defenseless, we mean that only in rhetorical sense. They are, of course, paid $116,672.11 annually and are represented by Jonathan Dennis. <clears throat> we here at Rapid Fire Theater simply want truth to be of the utmost importance. While we're well-known for BSing and doing our make-em-up shows, I guess it takes one to know one. However, in an effort to build a bridge, or perhaps a gondola of understanding, this podcast can use the rapid-fire name for this segment from now on, provided you add a small trademark symbol on all of your scripts. And while the hundred of listeners to this podcast won't see that small TM each week, they'll know it's there in their hearts. And it might just remind them, as they listen to two dorky policy wonks attempt to scramble together three jokes a week, of what comedy actually sounds like. And to the hosts of this podcast, who are half as popular as Lime Scooters and twice as annoying, we wish you a future as promising as the quarter's redevelopment. Thank you. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by Unbelts, the Edmonton-based biz that makes the comfiest stretch belts around. Unbelts also makes cloth masks, and you're going to need more of those whether you're heading back to school or just living in a city that requires masks indoors or on the bus. Unbelts masks are designed by serious perfectionists. The masks follow all the latest WHO guidelines, they're ethically made right down to their components, but most importantly, they're super comfortable even if you have to wear them all day. They have elastic straps that go around your head instead of your ears, they have a nose wire that keeps your glasses from fogging up, and Unbelts is a certified B Corp, which means their business is all about giving back. All September long, for every mask and kid's belt they sell, they'll give a mask to Alberta schools in need. Uh, I've been a user of Unbelts myself, basically since they started selling them. I have at least uh, 12 now, I think, in the house here, and I'm a big fan of them. I like them a lot, and I'm sure you will too. So what are you waiting for? You can head over to unbelts.ca to order your masks today. Shipping is always free, and you can enter the code APN that's for Alberta Podcast Network, for a free mini laundry bag just for being a listener to an Alberta Podcast Network show. Or if you're an Alberta teacher, click the teacher discount button on the homepage and you'll get 20% off the entire order. So you can check it all out at unbelts.ca and that code for you once again is APN. Now that we've got the opening out of the way, we have actual big news. Uh, Taproot has made its first hire. Yeah, this is a big milestone for the company. I'm very excited about this. We announced earlier this week that we have uh, hired our first managing editor for Taproot Edmonton, and that is Emily Rendell Watson, who has been our music roundup curator and our roundup editor for quite a while now. So we've been working with her uh, over the last year and a half or so, and I think she's going to bring a lot of really great talents, experience, and capacity uh, to Taproot Edmonton. And we're really excited to have her on the team, and you're going to see a lot of what she's uh, helping us to do over the next year, especially heading into the municipal election. 
you and Karen are both uh, doing Taproot full-time now. This means that with Emily to take all the work off the plate, you're going to Hawaii, kicking it on the beach? Oh, yeah. That's typically what happens, right? When you bring somebody on? (laughs) No, as nice as that would be, uh, we're now all three full-time and more than enough work to keep all of us and probably more busy. Um, We uh, have uh, lots of exciting projects on the go. We're seeing really good traction with some of the things we're doing. And uh, having Emily on board is going to help us do more and go faster, uh, not allow me to rest. What's the first thing on Emily's plate? now that she's the new hire for a managing editor? Well, you know, aside from the usual, like get used to the tools and the tech and our systems and all that kind of stuff, uh, Emily's going to start taking over the council roundup, which I currently do and which has a a nice yin and yang with this podcast content uh, a lot of times. So she's going to be the one writing about um, the news of the week in terms of municipal affairs going forward. And news of this week, the Indigenous Ward Name Committee has progressed one step further on the path to renaming our wards using Indigenous names. So this week, council got to look at the new bylaw for the ward boundaries and specifically for the names. And they endorsed adopting 12 Indigenous names to represent our city's wards. It was a nine to four vote. There was four councillors who voted against it. Uh, It still has to come back for second and third reading by the end of the year to be approved in time to make it uh, onto the ballots for next year's municipal election. Um, but if it does get approved, this makes Edmonton the first city in Canada to adopt Indigenous names for its wards, which is pretty exciting. Some of the councillors were concerned about the cost. Mike Nickel talked about spending 150000 or up to $150,000 uh, on this effort to come up with these names, even though he previously voted to allocate the budget for it. And others like Zadok and some others were concerned about the pronunciation of these wards and and thought that it might be too difficult for Edmontonians to say. And so Councillor Zadok actually put forward a motion to include numbers in the brackets around the ward names, and that was defeated. So we will have, assuming Council uh, continues forward here uh, with second and third reading, 12 Indigenous ward names next election. We have Rob Hool, friend of the podcast at this point. He previously joined us on episode 92, if you want to go back and listen to that. But he's agreed to come on and talk to us about all of that. And also because, yeah, you know, I won't give John D the credit of having a point, but these are new words. And contrary to his statements, humans do have the capacity to learn. And we thought it'd be a great opportunity to have Rob on. He can model some pronunciation of some of the word names and give us some of the stories behind the names that were chosen. And I think that'd probably be pretty valuable. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Rob. Thank you for the invite and happy to be back. So Rob, I think let's start by just getting into it. Let's go through some of the 12 wards. Yeah, so there are uh, 12 new names. They range from the Nakoda language to the Blackfoot language to the Nuktatun language as well. Um, Touching on treaty number six, uh, seven, and eight, as well as the Métis and uh, the LGBTQ2S plus community in Edmonton. And they are fantastic words uh, like uh, Nakoda Ishka and uh, Tastao Winawak in Inurkanik, um, Dene, Metis, Odaimin, Pehesuin, Papasteu, CP Winawak, EP Kogani Piutsia. I think the last one is Pomatapi, and of course Gario, which is uh, paying homage to the Michelle Band. I think that was, I think that was all twelve of them. I've been practicing over the last couple of weeks. One question I have with that is you mentioned all the 
wide variety of treaties and languages and cultures that these names come from. What was the decision to go that route, given that not every one of these communities are represented physically on the land at Edmonton? What was why, why was the choice made to include all of these broad languages? Well, I think we wanted to pay uh, attention to Treaty Number Six, of course, the territory that we fall into, and then, of course, um, the Blackfoot from Treaty Number Seven. They have a historical connection to Edmonton and area, um, marking their traditional territory all the way up to the southern banks of the North Saskatchewan River. They also shared with us some stories of traveling even further north on buffalo hunts and things like that. So we wanted to pay homage to them. Uh, the Inuit, because they were displaced and brought to Edmonton, sometimes against their will, um, to the Campbell Hospital, we thought it would be fantastic to, to provide them a little bit of recognition and respect. And that kind of speaks to the fact that Edmonton, for a long time, has been this hub, a gathering space, a gathering, a stopping point, um, things like that, that, that a lot of different tribes would come here and share in the space and share in their intertribal trade and things like that. And that's also reflected in um, the one of the Blackfoot names, which is, which is Spomatapi, which speaks to um, their stories about the Manitou Stone, which of course is at the Royal Alberta Museum and serves as kind of a, um, a visiting place for Indigenous people today uh, into the modern times. So it's, a, it's fantastic and it's interesting that these names kind of transcend time and space and transcend um, relationships and and different language families, and really, there's a lot of cohesion and camaraderie in the names. And I don't, th- I don't know if that's coming across to a lot of people, but once you start to understand and delve into the process, it all comes to light, and, and you gain a better understanding of what these names actually mean. Uh, Rob, I've seen some commentary about how this is a sort of token gesture, right? Like we were talking a little bit before the show that you know. Probably most Edmontonians don't know what ward they're in, whether it's a number or an Indigenous name. But the mayor defended this decision and said there's a story behind every name and it's a it's a really great step toward reconciliation. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. I think, yeah, I think once you start to look at the names, once you try to pronounce them, once you get a handle on pronouncing them, once you read the the understanding and the story and the connection and the history behind the name or the word, it it starts to transcend that kind of tokenistic approach. And, and when, I, when I do a lot of presentations on Indigenous naming, I speak specifically to the Indigenous romanticism and tokenistic approach that naming had taken before, where a bunch of non-Indigenous people just sit around a table and think of Indigenous words that come to their mind and then decide to name things after those kind of words. And that, that was a, a problematic way of naming things. And the way that we approached this was a, much more foundational, much more traditional, spiritual and indigenous way rooted in ceremony to make these names mean something to everyone that tries to pronounce them. And I know that one of the counselors was was citing his ambiguous, unidentified indigenous friends on, oh, this is this is cultural appropriation and whatever else. But again, I would I would ask that counselor to identify those unnamed Indigenous people. And if they are actually Indigenous, then they are missing the point of the whole process and definitely haven't read any of the, the information that's out there or understand the processes that we kind of embarked on. Naturally, the first complaint or concern about any of this is pronunciation, because these are words that are unfamiliar to most Edmontonian. But 
on that point, I don't know if this is too technical a question or if it's somewhere you have expertise. Do you know why the words were transliterated in such a way? A lot of the words as they're spelled are a bit unintuitive to say to an English speaker, but it's my understanding that most of these languages didn't use a Latin character set anyway. So we're making the choice to represent these with Latin characters and with our alphabet, but we're doing it in a way where some of the syllables don't make the sound you expect. What's the history of this transliteration process, if you know, and where did some of these syllabics come from? So syllabics has been a, a written language for a long, long time in indigenous communities. There are different interpretations of where it came from, and a lot of people credit it to a pastor or a priest or someone establishing that language, but we recognize it, and a lot of elders teach it as a, um, kind of the star chart um, and then a gift from our ancestors that we've had since time immemorial. Um, and you're definitely right that once you start to try to put those kind of syllabic sounds and the way that the star chart is written into um, other alphabets, it, it gets difficult to try to make the sounds. Um, so with the pronunciation guide the way that it is, a lot of the the, the attempt to try to make the sound available in an English language tongue um, makes for some weird kind of uh, arrangements and some weird sounding words. In the kind of Blackfoot pronunciations, um, you can see a real hanging on or dependence on the Blackfoot, true Blackfoot pronunciations. There's no anglicized attempts to try to make a pronunciation. There's two S's side by side, which is a, a sound, but in an English kind of form, you'd probably want to write something else instead of you probably just write a single S or something like that. So that's, again, the dynamics of the language that come across. But the way that they're written out in the pronunciations, and there will be pronunciation videos coming out later this year or into early next year to help people grasp those sounds. It's really trying to allow the English speakers to get a better handle on what kind of sounds they should be making. It doesn't have to be spot on, um, but it, it, it should be pretty close. And I think if people get close enough, then um, they shouldn't have any troubles uh, just practicing and, and making it a little bit easier. And and is that what your counsel would be to Edmontonians who are worried about this is just practice? I saw Councillor Hamilton, for instance, reference that, you know, it just is going to take some getting used to. We've learned how to pronounce, say, Saskatchewan or Wetaskiwin. It's not quite the same, maybe, but is that all it, is that all it'll take, you think, just people getting comfortable with it, practicing it? Uh, definitely. I think with any with any new words you le- you learn or any new terms, just about uh, practice and pronunciation. And and hopefully, I think it was Councillor Esslinger who said maybe if people start to learn these words, maybe they'll they'll it'll create some or is Councillor Knack maybe that said maybe it'll help them understand where they are in the city a little bit more, get a little bit of a learned location as opposed to to the old numbering system. And I don't know if anyone's ever looked at that old numbering system, but the numbers don't even go in a clockwise direction. They don't go in any sort of rhyme or reason. It's just one, two, three, five. It's, it was all over the place. So for some of the counselors to argue that people won't know which ward they live in now, I argue that, well, they didn't know before because the numbering system they, that we had in place made absolutely no sense whatsoever. So again, like you said, we can say Saskatchewan, we can say Manitoba, we can say Ontario, we can say Quebec, we can say 
Toronto. You can say all of these fantastic indigenous words and names for places in Canada. And Canada, of course, itself is our Ojibwe word. Um, We can say those words no problem, and that's just over practice and time. So I think with this initiative, hopefully the words and the names stick, and then people get used to saying them, and maybe it becomes something more meaningful for everyone else. The Ward 3 Councillor John Deziadike, he had issue with uh, the meaning for uh, his new ward name because he felt it was legislating and enfranchising social issues and making commentary on social issues via ward name. Of course, uh, this is referring to, I'm going to attempt the pronunciation, and this is my podcast failure on record, but Tastawa Iniwak? How did I do there? It's pretty close, yeah. Yeah. So his ward name references the in-between people, and it honors those who moved between gender roles in the LGBTQ2S community. What would you say to that, that this is sort of pushing social issues in people's faces through a nonpartisan committee? Well, I think it's a chance for a conversation around these so-called social issues, which may be new and paramount in today's society and and in settler society, um, haven't always been as guarded or or shunned within, within Indigenous communities. Yes. Sorry, that's my son. He's interrupting me here. Hi. Aaron Paquette's son interrupted him <laughs> as he was talking about this. So yes. we're par for the course. <laughs> so it opens up a conversation around um, the people from the LGBTQ2S plus community have been in Indigenous societies and Indigenous cultures for a long, long time. They fulfill special roles. Um, they have a chance to do different roles that, that other genders don't. Um, and there's some reverence and they were regarded sometimes as medicine people and things like that. So it speaks to a real disconnect in the way that we approach these so-called social issues and that Indigenous people have always been welcoming people and, and LGBTQ uh, people within our circles. It's I think it speaks a lot to the other side of the table that hasn't been as accepting and as as inviting as they probably should have. So it's a chance to educate there as well. And then I understand where people's learned experiences come from and and how and where they've been in life. And I know that he's had a, a certain type of experience and road and and past employment and stuff like that, where maybe they had different perspectives and different views on people. But that's hopefully with all of these names, people start to look beyond those preconceived notions and can become more welcoming um, of everyone, every type of person. Well, thanks so much for joining us again, Rob. It was great having you. And thanks again for the work on the committee. I suppose we should address that point for the listeners, because one of the things that was celebrated about this committee was the large group of women, I believe it was 17 women sitting on this committee as Indigenous leaders. You're not a woman. Uh, So what's the story there? Yeah, so um, I was... And very early on in our conversations, um, we saw an opportunity to do things a little bit differently. So uh, anyone that, that works with Indigenous communities or has, has knowledge of what Indigenous people have endured over the years, they know that a lot of our governance systems are very patriarchal and, and rooted in misogyny and things like that. So I think early on in this kind of initiative and, and opportunity, we saw a chance to really put the women's voice and women's perspectives back into the center and make them the authority of uh, this naming process. 
so we did that. We we gave them the space and the opportunity to kind of return to an old way of, of doing things that Indigenous people had done uh, very regularly before. So uh, at that point, it was decided that the committee would be up, be made up of all women. And I was uh, very honored and humbled at the opportunity to sit with them as just as the lone male, um, just kind of helping to guide the process and providing the space for them to share their knowledge and their wisdom. And then helping with some of the logistical things with, with the skills that I have um, and guiding the conversations in the right way. So I learned a lot through this process and learned a lot around the way that, that we can achieve things if we if we have the right people and the right guidance and we kind of let people do what they need to do. And that was one of the conversation pieces I had with the people from the city at the very beginning because bureaucrats will be bureaucrats and they offered to help in any way that they could. In our initial conversations, my request for help was just to get out of the way and let let us do it and let these women take control and let them guide the process. And thankfully, that's what they did. And I think we, we achieved a fantastic outcome with the 12 names. Okay. Well, thanks again for joining us, Rob, and for telling us some of these stories. It's great to have you on as always. Thanks so much. Thank you. In other news this week, Edmonton's police chief announced the Community Council, which from its press release, I was unable to differentiate from every previous effort to have some sort of community guiding coalition or council for the Edmonton Police Service. Yeah, this new advisory group will apparently consist of people who have experienced marginalization, racism, and discrimination, but it'll also have community and business partners on there, whatever that means. Like, does the police have business partners? I guess. Probably. Someone's <laughs> got to supply the tank. Yeah. And uh, the purpose of this committee will be to work directly with EPS on changes to policy, procedure, and operations. So that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it smacks of duplication to me. And the last time we talked about a committee like this, we talked about the the new Community Safety and Wellbeing Committee that came out of council's uh, discussions and public hearing over the summer. Uh, around uh, defunding the police and that whole discussion. And at the time, we said that committee sounded a lot like other committees that had come before it. And now we have another one. Yeah, and some of the quotes that uh, Chief Dale McPhee said were things like, quote, today we begin a new chapter of ongoing relationship building with these communities. I understand the skepticism some might bring to a statement like that. What makes this different from previous efforts is that this is not a listening campaign. It's not a campaign at all. It will not end. This is part of our everyday work today and moving forward. To which I say, again, good, but that doesn't sound like anything to me. It's either... It is a committee and it is a campaign that's doing something or Edmonton police is admitting that they haven't been doing their job for a few decades. I'm not sure what to take away there. And it's supposed to be some sort of accountability for the police. Like we have the police commission. Aren't they supposed to hold them accountable? We have city council and we have the myriad number of committees that they've created. We have reach and anti-racism committee, all these different things. I'm not sure this one's going to be any different. And are we supposed to take this as sort of like a tacit admission that these other committees have failed? Because if you need something new, then that means what you have isn't working. And okay, sure, we can admit that there is problems with policing and probably something isn't working. But then don't still run the other committees. If something's failing, change it. Let's fix it. Exactly. 
Uh, speaking of fixing things, Cancel has fixed the middle management problem, at least according to John D's Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, something we probably would have talked about last week if we'd had a usual show, but the audit committee uh, released uh, its first uh, part of an audit on productivity and performance. And it's looked specifically at the workforce and how much the city's workforce has grown, also at the increase in the number of supervisors at the city. And so they found that the overall workforce has increased by 232 full-time equivalents. Don't you love being referred to as an FTE uh, since 2017? But middle management has increased by 22%, while frontline supervisors 19%, and that overall number is only 6%. So they're seeing way more people moving into supervisory management level positions and recommended that council might want to do something about that. Which is fair. Uh, middle management, if anyone has worked in public bureaucracy, is literally the worst. Um, and in some cases, you know, we had heard that there were managers managing one to two reports. That's just a lot of management. Uh, I think everyone was on the same page that there was a bit too much. But city administration pushed back a little bit and defended these positions. And actually, so did the mayor. So Mayor Iveson said that some of these positions that have been technically classified as uh, supervisors are, quote, the very project managers who we've hired in order to make sure that we deliver infrastructure projects more accountably, more on time, more on budget. So what he's saying there is, you remember that previous audit that found we spent something like $600 million on consultants and all of the criticism that the city received for you know, outsourcing too much of this work to other people. He's basically saying, well, we brought some of that back in-house and we made the managers because we wanted to have these small technical teams. And so that's why it looks like the number of managers and supervisors at the city has increased when really it hasn't. It's almost like saying, well, instead of spending 600 million, we've only spent 60 million. So we're doing a, a good thing for you taxpayers. Sure. I don't know that I buy it. And I also don't know that that's not an indictment on your corporate structure. If people, if someone's a technical expert, I don't think they should be classified as a middle manager. Yeah. If that's the case, that these are people who are replacing consultant roles, why does it appear on the org chart that they're frontline supervisors? That doesn't track for me. Yeah, it's an odd, odd defense to make, I think. And I mean, on some level, council agrees because they directed administration to find ways to uh, reduce the number of supervisory positions at the city. And, and they talked about it as being potentially one of the things that could help keep any future tax increases either to zero or at least in, in line. I found it interesting because Councillor Walters in his lame duck session had sort of when this broke and certain councillors were going on and on about exclusives and how there's so much waste at the city, he called them on it and said, you know, if a counselor is talking about a middle manager within the corporation and not talking about urban sprawl, are they really conservative and dollar focused? Because right. that's where our biggest hit is. Good point. And we're just going to concede the point to him. Yep. Let's focus on that. Unfortunately, this week we have had the first large COVID-19 outbreak in Edmonton's homeless community. And central to all of that 
Camp Pekawiwin. There's been an outbreak reported at the Hope Mission uh, emergency shelter. It's the first in the homeless community. And so representatives for uh, the camp are quite concerned about this. Uh, Media liaison Shima Robinson uh, said that they've reached out to AHS and they've been talking about getting testing on site and screening on site. Um, They are looking to get more control over whether or not they can respond safely to an eventual COVID-19 case at the camp. Um, so that was kind of the the headline item this week, but they also used it as an opportunity um, to reiterate the sort of deadline that had been set, right? So they are actively working to winterize the camp right now. It's getting colder, leaves are turning colors, it's going to be winter soon. Um, and they're committed to staying there until there's a transition plan in place to safely and uh, securely house everyone who's currently living there. But Mayor Iveson had talked about, uh, you know, having this happen 10 weeks before the cold weather hits. For some reason, they've noted that as November 10th. They must know when the cold weather is coming, but it's coming up rapidly. And it's not like the mayor has been silent on this. Of course, he's been actively pushing for funding for affordable and supportive housing from the other orders of government. Um, The federal government made a big announcement this week, and the mayor sent a letter to the feds asking for $387 million so that Edmonton can go out, you know, buy these motels and other places that have dropped in value because of the pandemic um, and use them to uh, provide some of the supportive housing. And it's a very real possibility that we will get some of that money, not $387 million probably, but the federal government has just announced $1.2 billion for exactly that, cities to go out and buy hotels, motels, other forms of market housing that they can put homeless people in, keep them safe from the cold, keep them self-isolated if they have symptoms of COVID and really help control the situation as we get through the pandemic. Of course, that $1.2 billion is across the entire country, so there's a lot of cities in this country. I will say, uh, Camp Pekawiwin, because we're talking about winterizing, some people might say, didn't the city issue an eviction notice? It's important we don't confuse Camp Pekawiwin, which is in Rossdale, with the Peace Camp, which is at Dr. Wilbert McIntyre Park, the fringe grounds right by White Ave. That after some debate with city, has agreed to a peaceful closing of the camp, and that will occur on Monday, September 28th, at which point that camp will close up shop. But Pekawiwin plans to stay for the long call. Speaking of closing up, we closed up a few bus routes uh, for neighborhoods that really wanted bus service, and the city has unveiled their plan to give those neighborhoods a little bit of something in the form of an on-demand shuttle service, sort of like Uber meets Dial-A-Bus. Which is a kind of an exciting idea, frankly. I mean, Edmonton Transit this week in a news release said they've awarded a contract now for this two-year initiative to Calgary-based Pacific Western Transportation and New York City-based Via Transportation. That's a two-year thing that will allow people to book a shuttle using their smartphone on the telephone or a website. Um, It's expected to start sort of middle of next year, and it will be free for the duration of the pilot, although you will have to pay for normal transit once you transfer over to the regular network. And this is not quite like an Uber because it's not door-to-door service, but it's basically, hey, you're in the neighborhood, you want to get to the transit station, the bus will use smart routing to come and pick you up. And exactly how that's going to work, we don't know. I imagine it's some sort of smart routing like Uber Pool, where it'll just 
smartly route the bus to pick up people along the way and just constantly run circles of the neighborhood. But yeah, I'm pretty excited about this. A lot of people have complained that this is privatization of Edmonton Transit, which... Yeah, I'm not a fan of privatization of transit, but so is the Valley Line. Right. That doesn't mean that LRTs are bad. I'm happy that we're trialing this technology. And if we want to take this technology in-house and publicly run it in the future, I think we'll be all the better for having tried it. I hope it's a true pilot and that we do get to uh, learn some of those lessons and gain some of that knowledge so that we can look at how this idea of an on-demand public transit service could be applied to, you know, the, the wider service. I think that would be really exciting. You know, the other way you could look at this whole news item is Edmonton actively supporting Calgary's economy because it's a $20 million contract for a, a Calgary-based company. So you're welcome. Hey, Calgary. Hey, I heard you had office vacancies. We got you. We got Edmonton. We got you, fam. Speaking of people that have other people, the shared mic has our back as they're presenting this episode. Everyone has a story, and the narratives of Edmontonians provide a rich patchwork of experience that make our city a beautiful place to call home. A local podcast by age-friendly Edmonton, the shared mic, Conversations for the Ages, is providing a platform for Edmontonians of different ages and backgrounds to share their stories. You can listen to riveting intergenerational conversations on topics including cultivating friendships, building careers, exploring virtual theater, volunteerism, and more. The Shared Mic launches October 5th. That's coming up pretty quick. And it's available on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Shared Mic is brought to you by the Edmonton Seniors Coordinating Council and the City of Edmonton. And that's all for this week. Uh, we've got an exciting episode coming up next week. We will have the lame duck himself, Michael Walters, has agreed to come on the podcast, burn some bridges, who knows? But if you have a question you want to ask Michael Walters, the lame duck counselor, I'm going to say that every time and it's going to get <laughs> on his nerve. He's going to love that. We've got a voice link. It'd be in the show notes. It's just a website. You can go record a message and we'll play the good ones uh, for Michael Walters. We won't play all of them because some of them will be bad. You can head on over to the show notes to get that or it's voicelink.fm slash speaking municipally. Wait, I think we had a special message from a very special listener. We did. I was very happy to receive this message of congratulations on our 100th episode. Happy podcast, Uncle Troy and Daddy. Thanks, Emily. It's really encouraging to hear that. Until next week. I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.